Well, welcome. Welcome this morning to Church Online, as Kev just said. And really glad that you're with us as we continue this series on being disciples who make new disciples who make new disciples. I want to just start this morning by wishing my wife a very happy birthday. Um, yep, she's the love of my life, the best thing that's ever happened to me. And so I know it's been a tough month, but happy birthday and I'll take you out for lunch shortly. Be great. So we've been digging into this series, this, this series about the whole thing is to do with we are disciples who make new disciples. That's what we're called to do. It's the Great Commission. And we've been using uh, this image of a tree to help describe what this looks like as a bit of a model of discipleship. And uh, four weeks ago, we unpacked the idea that the, the trunk, the main part of strength in the tree um, that we're, we're using that image as discipleship environments. These environments where not only are we growing in our own discipleship, but we are empowered to help others in that process as well. Then we spent three weeks looking with the tree image under the surface, the root system, the stuff that's under the ground that not many people see in your life and in my life. And we sort of labelled that whole area under the ground as being grounded in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at things like our core beliefs and we looked at truth and we looked at our practices and habits and how those things actually shape the person we are becoming. And so today and for the next two weeks after today, we're going to be moving up the tree, past the trunk, into the branches, into this picture of this is the stuff that people notice. And what we're saying um, when we look through the branches in this model of a tree, we're saying that as part of discipleship, this is evidence of a transformed life. Evidence of a transformed life. And so we, we know the picture. We, there are many types of trees where the, the leaves, the foliage, the flowers and even the fruit are the things that distinguish what type of tree it is. And we'll come back to that later this morning. But basically what we're talking about this morning as part of evidence of a transformed life, we are talking about God working in your life. God working in my life, God working in our lives. And so when we use that picture of fruit, and, and we'll deal with um, this later, as I said, but love is one of the things that, that is described in Scripture as fruit. And love is this greatest virtue, this highest virtue. And Jeff touched on this last week. And that's really important because love is the key marker in which we are distinguished as being disciples of Jesus. Check this out. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 13. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And there's that key marker. It's the love for one another. It's the love for people that is the key marker that we will be identified as being disciples of Jesus. And so that's a real foundational piece in looking at where we're going this morning. But when we're talking about evidence of a transformed life, what do we actually mean by transformation? What is that about? 
Here's a great definition from a, a, a writer who writes in this stuff all the time, a guy called John Ortberg. He's a, he's a pastor in America. And this is how he describes it. He says, To grow spiritually or to live a transformed life means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place. To perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what he would think, to feel what he would feel, and therefore to do what he would do. It's an interesting way to phrase it. That it's not about trying to live like Jesus, because we don't live 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine. But if Jesus was living your life right now today, if Jesus was living my life, how would he do it? And we can have some good understanding of how we would do it because we, we read about how he lived life through, particularly through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So if you're maybe joining us for the first time, as Kev mentioned at the start, or, or maybe this is your first um, taste into a church online or even what church or Christianity is about, can I encourage you? There are four books um, in the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they are the ones that tell really specifically about the person of Jesus and how he lived. I'd encourage you to check those out. Another guy who writes in the Bible, there's a guy called Paul, and he wrote uh, 13 letters to different churches. And those letters are part of the Bible in the New Testament. And Paul, in his writing, he refers to this very notion, this transformed life, in a number of ways. He mentions to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, he mentions that uh, he is desiring to see Christ be formed in them. He says to the church in Corinth, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says that they should imitate him and how he lives just like Paul imitates Jesus. And then he says to the church in Philippi, in the letter of the Philippians, he says that they should have the same mindset as Jesus. And these are just some of the ways he's talking about what it means to live a transformed life. So there's this passage that I'd like to read to you that Paul writes, and it's actually to the uh, Corinthians. And just keep in mind some of the stuff I've just mentioned as you hear what he's saying here to these people. This is out of 1 Corinthians, it says, The spirit, not content to flit around on the surface, dives into the depths of God and brings out what God planned all along. Whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except you yourself. The same with God, except that he not only knows what he's thinking, but he lets us in on it. God offers a full report on the gifts of life and salvation that he is giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We didn't learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God, who taught us person to person through Jesus, and we're passing it on to you in the same first-hand personal way. The unspiritual self, just as it is by nature, can't receive the gifts of God's Spirit. There is no capacity for them. They seem like so much silliness. Spirit can be known only by Spirit, and God's Spirit and our spirits in open communication. Spiritually alive, we have access to everything God's Spirit is doing and can't be judged by unspiritual critics. 
Now, Isaiah, he, he, he was a writer in the Old Testament, a prophet. He had a question. He says, is there anyone around who knows God's spirit? Anyone who knows what he's doing? And that question's been answered. Christ Jesus knows and we have Christ's spirit in us. So there's this sense that Paul is explaining here that the very spirit of God, the very nature of God, God himself is imparted into us as followers of Jesus, as disciples, and through his spirit in us, we can align ourselves with what God wants to do in us and through us as we live our life. It's a beautiful picture. The Holy Spirit and our spirit in open communion. That's a really intimate picture of what it means to be connected with God. God is not this distant being somewhere up in space, but he is as close to you as your very next breath. It's a great image, a great truth. And the Holy Spirit, when we look at it this way, the Holy Spirit causes the human spirit, the very essence and nature of who we are as people, the Holy Spirit causes the human spirit to submit, to, to allow God to lead us, God being in the driver's seat, as Kev just, just said to us, um, to lead us in the way we live life. And it's the best way to live because as our creator, God knows what is best for us. And so when we step into the, to the design that he has for us, that is the best thing we can be doing. Now, this is not a simple thing to grasp. Like There's a lot of nuance in this and, and, and it takes a fair bit just to get your head around some understanding of what we're talking about. So I'll flesh it out a bit more. Paul continues to talk about this. In his letter to the Philippians, he says it this way. He says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. I love that phrase there. God is working in you through his indwelling Holy Spirit as a believer in Christ. And that spirit in you changes your desires. It empowers you to live in the way that we're called to live. And so it's not about you or I trying really, really hard to do the right thing. It's not about you or I just trying to struggle along with life and not mess up too often. It's actually about submitting to the leading of God through his spirit and God will change you from the inside out we start to notice that our desires start to change, our motives start to change, our responses start to change. And all of a sudden, we are starting to bear the type of fruit that we would say was the type of fruit that Jesus displayed in his life. It really is a beautiful picture. God does the transforming work. It's not about you or I trying really, really hard to do it. So when God is at work in your life, he will give you through his spirit, the will to submit to the type of living that results in character transformation. And as I just said, that result means we become more like the person of Jesus. And that right there is the very essence of Christianity. Christianity is not about a certain 
set of beliefs and a certain set of behaviours that means you go to some place when you die. That is not the message of Christianity. That's religion and that's tainted with, with um, moving away from the type of relationship that Jesus wants us to step into. So my question to that is, and, and for people who have had something to do with church, the Christian church, and that may be you sitting there this morning right now saying, okay, this is part of what my life is like right now. Or maybe I was involved in church as a child or maybe somewhere in the, in the past, but it, it doesn't really do much for me now. I need to ask this question. Do we expect in the church transformation to take place? And I had to think about that. Now, some of the things we do expect in the church... And this has been my experience right through my life. These are some things that would be expected. Now, they may not be overtly spoken, but nonetheless, you'll probably resonate with this. We would expect people who are in the church, people who are putting their hand up and saying, yep, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. We would expect that they would act a certain way, that they would speak a certain way, that they would avoid certain types of sin or behaviour that they would pray regularly, that they would support the church financially, that they would attend Sunday services regularly, use certain platitudes with one another, like, oh, I'm praying for you and God bless you and those sorts of things. And we would expect those sorts of external behaviours to be visible, but do we really expect that people can be changed deep inside in their character to become more like Jesus? Through discipleship, through the very thing that Jesus calls us to be and to do, disciples who make disciples, we can expect to become more loving and more compassionate and more patient and more kind and more generous as the years progress. We should see that the longer we are involved in the church and in the process of discipleship, the more beautiful we become as people. The elder folk in churches should be the most beautiful, caring, loving people because they've potentially had years and years of this process. According to Jesus and what he said, according to Paul and the letters he wrote, according to the disciple John, who also wrote several of the letters in the Bible, this is what is expected from people who choose to follow Jesus. But there's a danger here. There's a warning. So if our character change is not marked by an increase in love for God and others, if love, just as we started earlier, if love is not the dominant primary um, fruit that we can point to to say that's the difference. If love is not evident, we will find other ways to distinguish ourselves from those who are not part of the church or those who would not say they are Christian or followers of Jesus. And we'll actually be tempted to find these external measures or methods to say, I'm different to you. And those things can be quite ugly. Certain behaviours, certain attitudes, a sense of being judgmental. 
You know what I'm talking about. All of us have had enough to do with, with church and religion in our life that we know what this looks like. You know, we, we can go back to a couple of generations ago where there were so many things you were just not allowed to do or be involved in or even be in the, in the proximity of. Now, things like drinking and dancing and smoking and all, all these types of things that were just deemed by the church to be completely off limits. And then the way we act, the way we behave, the things we're part of, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, all those things became the measure of those who were part of the church or followers of Jesus compared to those who weren't. But that's not the picture we get. That's not what the Bible describes. So it's not a matter of the things that we do or don't do. It's actually about who we are and who we are becoming. Those things make the difference. So when transformation happens, I don't just do the things that Jesus would have done. I actually find myself wanting to do them. It's not like this external set of rules I have to follow and tick a box. They actually become part of who I am and what I want to do. They appeal to me. They make sense. I don't just go around trying to do the right things, I actually start to become the right kind of person, the person like Jesus. So according to Jesus, the two greatest things that someone can do when they're aligning their life to his, when they're following him, is to love God and love others. These are the two most obvious signs of becoming the right kind of person. Jesus spoke to this very clearly. You may be familiar with this. This is in Mark's Gospel. And the story says, one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate. There was a whole debate going on and these people were trying to trick Jesus in to saying something wrong. And he realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied, and this, his reply is straight out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. And it says this, The most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, if, again, if you have grown up with some understanding of the, the Christian faith, you'd be familiar with the Ten Commandments. Now, these two commandments that Jesus listed here relate to the Ten, but the Ten Commandments, um, as we know them, as we may have been taught them as a child, were pretty specific. So notice Jesus didn't say that the greatest commandment is do not murder. And notice he didn't say that the greatest commandment was do not commit adultery. You see, when love, when love for God and others is the highest virtue, when love is the, the measure to which we are, are, are living up to, it's actually possible to come to the place where our love for others results in the fact that it would be impossible to harm them or to be unfaithful. To someone we become the type of people where murder or adultery are just not even an option for us because of the way we view others and the way we understand how God views us 
Jesus actually addressed this quite specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Check this out, when he's talking about these two issues. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he goes on, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus makes it really clear that our behavior is a result of the condition of our heart, our inner character, that place where that transformation is taking place. So it's not about whether I did a certain action or not. And this is where the religious leaders of Jesus' day were getting it wrong and this is the issue he had with them. So they would say, well, I haven't actually killed someone and I actually haven't had sex with someone other than my spouse, so I'm okay. But Jesus was bringing the issue to the heart and he was saying, but, but how do you think about others? What goes on in your mind when you look at someone else? Where do others stand in my heart and, and in my mind as I interact with them? So once again, it's not a matter of what we do or what we don't do. It's more about who we are and who we are becoming. See, living life as a follower of Jesus with the indwelling Holy Spirit guiding and shaping us every single day, we can become the type of people who consistently interact with and respond to and think about others in the same way we see Jesus doing, particularly as we read his life through the Gospels. This is the type of transformation to which we are called to. But I've got another warning here. And this is, I think, one of the biggest barriers of living into and experience the type of transformation that we're talking about. And that barrier is the way we think about ourselves. And this relates to what we discussed a few weeks ago, some of those core beliefs and the truth so I want to address right now, if you are a professing Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about this. And, and, and if you're not, if you're listening to this today and you're not quite there with Christianity and you're not sure about all this Jesus stuff, I want you to listen to what this could be. See, if your core belief is that you are, and here's a phrase that you'll often hear around churches, if your core belief is that you are a sinner saved by grace, then it makes sense that the foundation, the, the, the starting point of everything you do is, is that I'm a sinner. And when that's your core belief in who you truly are, that I'm just a sinner, so this, I'm talking to people who, who would say they are Christian, if you have this starting place that I'm just a sinner, then life becomes just trying really, really hard to do the right things. And that posture, I know from personal experience and from talking to others, just leads to frustration. It leads to a sense of it's not, there's not fulfillment there. And a good way to describe that is that we live a life of sin management. We just try not to do too many bad things. So for those who like maths, there's this little 
uh, formula that I think many people in this boat would adhere to. So it would be more right behaviour plus less bad behaviour equals godliness. And we live our life just trying to think about the behaviour. We don't have any model of thinking for the very heart and core issue that results in the behaviour. But when we take scripture, when we take the writings of, of the Gospels and particularly of Paul, and we see that those who are Christian, and the word Christian literally means little Christs, little Jesuses, baby Jesus. When we take that and look through the New Testament on how we are described for those who are followers of Jesus, we see phrases like this. We see that we are in Christ, that Christ is in us, that we are saved, that we are born again, that we are a child of God, that we are co-heirs with Jesus, that we are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, there's a whole range. But one of the words that's often used is that we are saints. Now, I think we struggle with that word in today's context because we have this picture of a saint, of someone who's nearly perfect, never does anything wrong, and we know ourselves that, that I'm not like that. You're probably not like that. But a saint is a word described through New Testament writings that describes the person who was in relationship with Jesus Christ. So, when we allow our core belief to say that I am not a sinner, but I'm actually a saint. Now, I'm a saint who's not perfect. I'm a saint who occasionally will do something wrong. I'm a saint who occasionally lose the plot. I'm a saint who will occasionally um, make mistakes. But my core identity is that I'm a saint. I'm not a sinner. And so when we realize that I'm a saint, we can actually grow up in maturity into the reality of who Jesus says we are. And that reshapes the way we, we do life. We intentionally trust that God is right when he says that we are saints and we intentionally trust him for direction and transformation to mature us into what is already true of us. We don't have to just try harder. And I love this simple prayer that puts all of this in perspective. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher and theologian from the mid-1800s. And look how simply he puts this. He says, And now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. That's the prayer of transformation. That Jesus says who I am. Jesus says who you are. And his spirit in you and his spirit in me shapes and transforms us to become the very people that he says we are, the very people that he sees we can be. See, the power behind our transformation is that the Holy Spirit would become our dominant reality of what life is like. What I mean by that is that we will no longer allow the media and our smartphones and our family and our occupation to, to shape 
who we are at, at the truest ide- core identity piece. We can actually practice the presence of God. And what I mean by that is that we have an awareness of the Holy Spirit in our life and we have relationship with him. There's this conversational relationship. And that becomes the primary way we experience life, the primary way God works in our life, and the primary means of transformation in our life. Coming back to this image of fruit, the things that we can see on a tree that helps us identify what type of tree it is. In Galatians chapter 5, one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he uses what, what is commonly known as the fruits of the Spirit. He talks about this. But prior to that, he, he talks about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, which results in the fruits of the Spirit. And remember, fruit is the thing that distinguishes what type of tree it is. So this might be familiar to you, but these are the fruits of the Spirit that, that Paul talks about. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Imagine if our life as a disciple of Jesus, that as people interact with us, in our home, in our workplace, in our school, in our sporting teams, wherever we find ourselves, that the things that are noticeable about us are things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are beautiful traits and these are the traits that are growing in you and I as God does his transforming work in us. Now, I want to read this passage in context. So this is out of the middle of Galatians chapter 5. And Paul is talking to this group of people, and it's also very relevant for us, about what it looks like to work out this in our life, how it makes sense in our life, how we wrestle with those inner thoughts and desires and ideas and how we interact with everyone around us. So I'm going to read... A passage here, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This won't be on the screen, but I just want you to listen to this. In the context of everything I've just said, listen to how Paul spells this out. He says, this is starting in verse 13. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this, Paul says, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us 
that is at odds with a free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Listen to this list that Paul gives these people that was true for them and it's true for us. These are the types of things that, that we turn to when we want to live our own way. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. An all-consuming yet never satisfied wants. Brutal tempers, an inability to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on, Paul says. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? And here comes what we know as the fruit of the Spirit. What happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity we develop a willingness to stick with things a sense of compassion in the heart and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people we find ourselves involved in loyal commitments not needing to force our way in life able to marshal and direct our energies wisely legalism or, or rules are helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls the necessities of life is killed off for good. It's crucified. And since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another was worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. What a beautiful passage of scripture to just highlight the very thing that God wants to do in you and I. He doesn't want us just to be sitting in some sort of religion where we think we believe something so that we can get to some place when we die. He's saying, no, I have something so much better for you. I have a life 
where freedom will just exude out of it because you choose to align yourself with me through my indwelling spirit in you. And that indwelling spirit loves you so much, will not leave you where I found you, but I will help change you and morph you and transform you into the very type of person I can see you becoming. It's a beautiful picture. Let us pray about that together. So Father God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us. I thank you that you are a God who, who loves us so much that you want to bring change and transformation in our life, that you see what is best for us and you have provided everything necessary to bring us to that place. So I ask for those who do not know you this morning, you might be listening to this, that your spirit would bring fresh revelation of the type of life that is available when we step into being a follower of Jesus. And I ask for the boldness and the courage to make that decision when, when there's a sense that God, you're, you're, you're knocking on the door of my heart, you're drawing me to yourself, you're revealing yourself to me and there's something in that that I need to respond to. And for those of us, Lord, who, who are already following you in our life, I pray that we can have that sense, that really clear sense that we are not sinners at the core part of who we are, but we are saints. And I pray for your spirit to be at work in our lives so that we will grow and mature into the very people that you would see us becoming for your glory and for your honour. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.